Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit that is in the that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. This is God's word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Spirit, we beseech you this morning. Let us be mindful of the sin of our first parents. And let us not fall into the trap of the enemy. Let us see your word and let it be the deciding and dictating, determining factor in our lives. And Lord, I decrease that you may increase. Strengthen and encourage your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The last time that we gathered on the Lord's Day, we considered three principles of marriage as we concluded the second chapter of the book of Genesis. We learned the leaving principle of marriage. God's word says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. When a man is united to his wife in marriage, there is a fundamental leaving of the original family that takes place. This is not a cutting off of the original family, but rather a rearranging of that family. The new family now becomes the main priority. But the original family must not be neglected. For God commands that we are to honor our fathers and our mothers and to continue to support them. We learned the holding fast principle of marriage. The man and the woman are to be wielded together like hot iron. This does not begin at their marriage ceremony and end at their marriage ceremony. It begins at the marriage ceremony and it continues till death do us part. Amen. We are to hold fast to one another. We are to continue to be bound to one another and continue that binding, continue that wielding to our spouse until death do us part. Finally, then we learned the becoming one flesh principle of marriage. We learned that this principle is last, the last principle in how God has ordered and arranged marriage, not the first principle. The world will tell you that Becoming one flesh should be first. 
And God has created becoming one flesh to be last. Amen. We leave our fathers and mothers. We hold fast to our wives. And the consummation of the marriage bed is the last thing that God has established for us. Physical union in marriage. It is a good and gracious gift from God. But it must also be coupled with, united with personal union. We in our marriages are to seek to become personally intimate with our spouses, not just physically, but personally intimate with our spouses, to know them, to continue to know them as you hold fast to them. And in doing this, may the Lord use our marriages to be a means of evangelism to the unbelieving world, to our children who are we are discipling as unbelievers And yet discipling them that they may come to the faith and let our marriages be examples of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now today we come to the third chapter of the book of Genesis. And let me say that that much will be said concerning the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Today's sermon will be, as it were, an, an opening sermon to set the stage for the rest of the chapter Of the third chapter of the book of Genesis. This morning we will be considering just two points. One statement and one question. On God's word. And how it shapes and forms our reality. God's word shapes and forms our reality. Is the consideration or title for this morning. Number one. Here is our first point. God's word. Defines what is true. Or. God's word defines reality. God's word defines what is true or God's word defines reality. I will read Genesis chapter three, verse one through six again. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and she ate. We know these verses all too well. We and the rest of the world know these verses all too well. And let me say, as we dive into these verses, you are not reading mythology. Let me say to you that as we read these verses and as we proceed with the rest of this sermon, you are not reading a fairy tale. You, brothers and sisters, We together are reading the tragic fall of humanity. A true historical event. The woman created innocent, created in the image of God, has found herself in the presence of a crafty servant, serpent. In Hebrew, his name is Hanahash. He is the adversary, the accuser, the evil one. He is the tempter. The word of God tells us that he took the form of a serpent. And you may ask, brothers and sisters, how is that possible? 
Is he a a shape-shifter? Is he able to take on different shapes? Let me say to you as you ask that question, which I, I at least asked myself, don't allow yourselves to be distracted from the main point. And secondly, realize that Scripture does testify that Satan presents himself innocent as an angel of light even. He is cunning. He is crafty. Crafty is the same word used for David's illusion of Saul when Saul chased him time after time and and failed to to grasp David. David was crafty. Saul could not catch him. It's also used in the Proverbs to describe a prudent man who knows how and when to act in in different situations and circumstances. The word craftiness could be used for good and it could be used for evil, but in reference and concerning Satan. Craftiness is always used for ill and not for good. He is a liar. He was a liar from the beginning. He is the father of lies, Jesus says. He is the deceiver. He is the false promiser. He is crafty. And the serpent comes to the woman with an attack. It's an attack that is disguised in the form of a question, a seemingly innocent question. The question at hand is this. Has God said? What has God said? And in the attempt to ask the question, there is also an attempt to undermine, to damage or to weaken what God has actually said. The question again, did God actually say, verse one, you shall not eat of any tree? How smooth. Any tree in the garden? I can hear the voice of my father right now as he would say in the prison often as he quoted this verse, Yea, hath God said. In the old, old King James Version, Yea, hath God said. And brothers and sisters, Satan will come to you. And Satan will come to I, me, with the, the most seemingly innocent questions. They are not innocent. They are deceiving And think about the dragon's question. Dear woman, is it true that of all of the trees that you have in the garden, that God has restricted trees to you? The liar comes to the woman as as a a seemingly innocent inquirer. And and he knows the answer to the question. He is not uh, uh, ignorant of what God has said. He knows what God has said and yet comes to the woman and says, is it true that God has said? He comes to the woman. And as one seeking correction, even think about that comes to the woman, knows what God has said, and yet is is allowing himself to be corrected on purpose. Why? He comes to this woman made in the image of God, sinless woman, perfect woman. And he's allowing himself to be corrected. The dragon. Pretending to be wrong. Verse 2, what does the woman say? We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now think about this. The woman, in her innocence, believes that she is helping this little animal. Maybe he was little, maybe he was big, we don't know. She believes she is helping him. Oh, poor, uninformed serpent. 
we may eat. And all the while, she does not realize that she is being drawn into the claws of the dragon. Notice who first mentions the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Who's the first? Is it the serpent? Or is it the woman? It is the woman. She is the first to mention. The serpent says nothing of the tree at first. She does. Do you see the trap? Is it true that we are not to eat, that you are not allowed to eat of any tree? Well, what does the serpent know? That there is one tree. And what is he waiting for her to say? Oh, no. We may eat of all the trees except for one. Because there is a truth connected to that tree that she will speak about, that he will eventually lie about or deceive about. The woman is the first. The woman is the first to make mention of the tree. And she has fallen into, she is slowly falling into the serpent's trap, luring the woman. And her attention to the tree was the target of the deceptive serpent from the very beginning. That's the target. Why? Because the tree is sacramental. It's a covenantal sign of the covenant between God and man, the covenant of works. The Lord God said to the man in Genesis 2.16, you may surely eat of Every, any tree in the garden, but one, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. If man obeys, if man disobeys God, he breaks covenant with God. He breaks fellowship with God. And that is the goal of the deceiver. Brothers and sisters, it is still his goal today. It is still his goal today. The serpent, the devil, has not changed his intentions toward you. What is his intention? To steal, to kill, and to destroy you. He may be using different means, but the goal remains the same. The goal is to somehow uh, disrupt and, and, and destroy our relationship and fellowship and peace with God. That's the goal. The woman responds. We may eat of all of the trees in the garden. But there is one that has been restricted by God. God said that if we eat of this tree, we will die. And what does the dragon say? You will not surely die. Now think about this. It is the first time in the existence of this woman. That she has ever heard that God could possibly be wrong about something. The first time that she has ever been told that God may not be fully telling you the truth. The first time that God's word in all of her hearing has been refuted. We hear this every day. But imagine an innocent, sinless woman for the first time hearing God is not telling you the truth. And in the estimation of the serpent, in fact, God is, in fact, lying to the woman. The woman first corrected the serpent. No, we may eat of all trees but one. And now the serpent is correcting or attempting to correct the woman. You will not surely die. Is he correct in his correction? No. We know that, obviously. He continues. And and listen, if that were not enough, he continues. 
you will not surely die. That's the first lie. The second lie comes, verse 5. And let me pause for a second. The first lie, it's not going to happen to you. You hear that? It's not going to happen to you. Here is temptation. Here is the restriction. Here are the consequences. But it's not going to happen to you. As a matter of fact, he continues then, not only will it not happen to you, but the opposite will happen. Not death, but life. Not cursing, but blessing. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. As if the lie that you will not die were not enough, the serpent then drives his lying tongue down the ears of the woman straight to her mind, down to her heart to get her to question the very goodness and truthfulness of God himself. The deceitful one accuses God of being deceitful. In his accusations, he makes the claim that God is keeping the woman from something that would not kill you, but to the contrary, bring you life. Listen, God kind of life. You, what's the promise? Or what's the lie? You will be like God. You will be like God. And though the woman may perceive, though we know, That the woman does not understand at that moment the consequences. She falls for the same thing that you and I fall for every single day. You can be like God. Now, now, not God in the sense of holiness, but God in the sense of absolute independence. Amen. Not God in the sense of holiness, not God in the sense of righteousness, but God in the sense of I can do what I want to do. It is my life, my prerogative. We could be God. What is the motive of choosing sin over what God has commanded clearly in his word? What's the motive? To be God. To be the masters of our own ships. That we might direct and determine our own destinies with ourselves only to stand before when all is said and done. With not almighty, righteous, holy God to stand before, but ourselves and our own decisions to stand before. We desire that most. Ask yourselves, if there were no God to stand before at the end, what would I do right now? And our head nods are evidence of our depravity. This is a lie. The woman sees the fruit. It is good for food. And she believes the lie. She believes. She believes that it, the fruit, has the ability to make her wise. Or to make her like God or a God. Brothers and sisters. How you view God's word is so important. How you view what God has said is so very important. Why did the woman eat? Because in her mind and in her heart, 
She wanted to be God. That's secondary. What came first? Doubting what God has said. The desire to be God came second. What came first was I can be God or what came first was I don't believe what God has said. God has said I will die. I now believe that I won't die. What about you? What do you believe? What do you believe concerning sin? Do you believe that it is a, an offense toward God? That it separates you in fellowship with God? That it takes away from the peace that God freely gives to his elect? Or do you believe that it will bring you pleasure, joy, and that there will be no consequence? What do you believe? Option one is true. Option two is what you may sometimes believe, but is not true. And what you believe is often, though you believe it, not true. How do we know? Ask your feelings. Ask your feelings. Often what you feel is often really not true. Amen. She no longer believed what God had said. She believed the lie of the enemy. Verse six. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. She saw and that it was desirable or that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. The fall of man. At the disbelief of what God has said. We think the fall of man because she they partook of the fruit. Yes, that is the action. Yes. What came first, the belief or the action, the belief. You act based upon what you believe. So when you act in sinful ways, ask yourself, what do I really believe? What's going on in here that's making me think that what I'm doing is okay? What do you believe? Who is true? You or God? Now, this is the preliminary sermon. We will deal more with sin, the fall of man. The curse of man and woman and the serpent. But right now, the matter is God's word. So our first statement, God's word dictates, determines what is true. And here is our question. Does God's word define your reality? Does God's word define what is true for you? Think about that question. Does God's word define our reality? I say to you that God's word does define our reality. God's word defines our reality, whether you believe so or not. Whether you accept God's word as being true or not, God's word defines what is true, whether you accept it or not. Amen. Listen, you will not stand before God. And be judged upon what you thought was true. And have a discussion with God and God will say, yeah, I can see that. That's, that's plausible. You will stand before God and be judged based upon what he has decided and determined and declared what is true. Not what you think is true. 
If you recall the first chapter of the book of Genesis, God speaks and it is. Or God speaks and there is. God says and it becomes. When God declares something to be, it is. And it is what it is because God's word has declared it to be. Amen. All things, all things are what they are because the creator has made them what they are. Things created do not determine to be what they want to be. God determines what they will be. God, the author, God, the designer, declares and determines what things that he has created will be and will not be. Why is the world the way that it is? Why is it the way that it is? And it is what it is because God has created it to be what it is. God said to his creatures, on the day that you eat from this tree, you will die. True. Reality. The serpent successfully deceived the woman into blurring truth. The truth of God. He deceived her in such a way that she could not make a connection between what God has said and what actually was true. Or what she actually believed was real. Here's what God has said is true. Here's what I believe. And I can't make the connection between the two. Why? Because she believed that there might be something in that fruit that God did not create her with that she could attain to. Maybe there is something there that God is withholding from me. The belief came first. But this is what God has actually said. Amen. She saw That the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. And then what happened? What was it that so quickly corrupted the clear? Think about that. What happened that so quickly corrupted the clear thinking of this innocent, sinless woman? Sinless, innocent. And all of a sudden she is corrupted in her mind. What has happened? It was not just the suggestion of the serpent that caused doubt. It was that she, listen, freely able to sin, freely able not to sin, that she had freely loosened her grip of God's word. She had freely, listen again, able to sin, able not to sin. She had freely loosened her grip of what God had said. God's word. No longer defined for her what was true and what was false. She decided that she would define for herself what was true and what was false. God's word no longer dictated or determined her life. She now became the master. She, because she made a free choice, decided that she would determine what was true and what was not true. Because she saw the fruit was good for food. A delight to the eyes. She believed that it could make her wise. That it could make her like a God. The devil. The deceiver. The liar. The accuser. Successfully recreated. What she perceived was reality. With his words. What words? You. Will not die. You. Can be like God. And that's all he needed to say. You would think. Reading back. Hindsight. That she would be more wise. That she would be more understanding. That she would see the consequences down the road. But ask yourselves the same question. What about you? 
We see the woman and say, how could she not see this? Ask yourself the same question. How could you not see this? How could you make the same mistake? Because the M.O. has not changed from the garden to the 21st century. It has been show, create doubt. What do you believe? Go your own way. He manipulated truth. The swindler used the truth in a false way. Fruit doesn't kill you. You've been eating all of this fruit. How could fruit kill you? Fruit doesn't kill. But the truth was that there was a death that would occur that was far worse than this woman could have ever imagined. Be like God. Imagine you could be God. And there is an element in which the truth, the crook, the the deceiver was correct. But in a polluted way. Yes, you will be able to take charge of your own life. You will be able to sit on your own throne. But there is no throne. The taking charge of your own life means that it produces death, though. Go down the road. It is your free choice. At the end of it is death. At the end of it is destruction. There is no joy. There is no lasting pleasure. You will die because of this choice. Brothers and sisters, God's word must define our reality. Because God's word, only God's word defines our reality. When Satan blurred the truth, it it did not make what is true untrue. You got that? When he blurred that which was true, it didn't make that what God had said untrue. It was still true. It was just now corrupted. It, It was now polluted. Just because the woman believed the serpent didn't mean that what she believed was true. She believed a lie. And what God said is true. Human language tries and fails over and over again to change the truth. But we do not have the power to do so. Because God alone defines what is true. We may try and fail to redefine marriage. But what God has determined and what God has decreed about marriage will always be true, no matter how the world attempts to change, rearrange, and misinterpret marriage. The world will try to redefine truth and love, roles of husbands and wives, the the, the purposes of children in this world. All for what? So that we might once again, through the, the deception of the enemy, fall once again to the same folly of our first parents. That we might be able to create our own worlds and be the masters of our creation. When we are the creators of our own reality. It's a fool's errand, brothers and sisters. Young ones, you will see today all over, and and they are flashing it constantly in your face, that you must be what the world says you must be. But young ones and old ones, middle-aged ones, God has already determined who you must be in his word. Do not pursue what the world says you must be. Don't think that you need to move to the big city, experience different cultures. No, chase after God. Believe his word. Obey his word. That is why you have been created. As hard as we try, we will never be able to 
shape the world with our own truth. God's truth shapes what is true. The Lord Jesus Christ said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Brothers and sisters, the world, the flesh and the devil will attempt to convince you that what is that which is false is true. That which is bad is good. But what will you uphold as the standard for your life? What will be the thing that determines and shapes your reality and shapes what is true? Thomas Brooks says in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. To present the bait and hide the hook. To present the golden cup and hide the poison. To present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin. Listen. And by hiding from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. By this device he took our first parents And the serpent said that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Your eyes shall be open and ye shall be as gods. Here is the bait, the sweet, the pleasure, the profit. Oh, but he hides the hook, the shame, the wrath and the loss that would certainly follow. He is a liar. He is the father of lies. He presents to us that which we believe will bring to us satisfaction and reward that we may only find in Christ, not in earthly pleasures. The accuser will show us everything from vast kingdoms of the world to small stones that we could believe could one day become bread. All for the purpose of breaking fellowship with the lover of our soul. That's the goal, again, to disrupt your union with Christ, to break the bond of peace that is offered by faith alone in Christ alone. And may God give to us ears, eyes and minds to see and hear and understand the folly that is is found in pursuits of this world, the flesh and the devil. And brothers and sisters, what, what joy What joy unspeakable, what reward is found in obedience when we obey what God has commanded, when we allow God's word to dictate and determine what we will do, how we will live? Or will we be like our first parents who rebelled against God? Will we believe the lie of the enemy? Or we, or will we, Like the Lord Jesus Christ, allow God's word to shape our world. Each time when he was tempted by the devil, what did he say? Thus saith the Lord. For God has said, for God has said, he declared every single time what God has said or what is true. When Satan offered was a mirage. What Satan offered is a farce. It is the bait and praise be to God that our Lord Jesus Christ knew the hook that was behind his back. What about you, brothers? What about you, sisters? Young ones, 
What about you? You are not too young to allow God's word to dictate and determine your lives. Because at this age that you are at now, you are the prime target of the enemy. Brothers and sisters, the reshaping and redefining, the attempted reshaping and redefining of truth is not just present in the world. It's present in the church. There are those who hop from church to church seeking in quest of genuine, true Christianity. What does that even mean? They are are using words to define their search, using buzzwords that are not biblically defined, but defined in their own minds of what they think they want. I really want the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? I really, now I feel the Spirit here. Is that what you're really feeling? Where has the Spirit of God most revealed Himself? Therefore, when this is taught accurately and biblically, the Spirit of God is present. If you're looking for lights and music, if you're looking for games and prizes, that's not the Spirit of God. That is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you need the Holy Spirit to correct your thinking. There are those who say, I'm looking for accountability. I need to be in a church where there is accountability. What does that mean? Is that a prerequisite for what the church is and what the church does? I need a place where there is accountability. Some define this to mean that it's someone else's job to make sure that I don't sin. It's the job of my group, small group leader, the, the job of my pastor, my accountability partner to keep me on the straight and narrow to make sure that I don't sin. And when I do sin, am I going to be honest enough with them to tell them I have sinned? How is everything going? Great. What is that? According to Scripture, that is Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. What they're looking for is called church discipline. That is being involved in the lives of your local church, addressing and confronting present sin. That is the church being so involved in the lives of the church and calling sinners to to repentance. That is taking it to the elders if they refuse to repent. That is taking it to the whole congregation if they choose to repent. All for what? For the purpose of saving that unrepentant soul. That is church discipline. That is true biblical accountability. Why? Because God's word has defined that for us, not us in our own minds. God's word informs us on what true Christianity is and what true Christianity does. But is that what people really want? You want the Holy Spirit? Come, we are doing an exposition of the book of Genesis. I do work with people all the time. And I often meet people who go to to big churches. I won't say the names of them. And I'll say, what is your pastor teaching right now? We just did a four-week series in the book of John. Praise God. Our church did did almost two-and-a-half-year series in the book of John. Two-and-a-half years? Good Lord. What do you mean two-and-a-half years? Oh, I couldn't do that. We're actually right now in the book of Genesis. We've been there for about five months. Five months? Is your pastor's crazy? 
Do you want God's word? You say you want the spirit of God. You say you want to be taught. You say you want to go deeper, as it were. Do people really want us to call them on their sin, on our sin? Do people really want to repent? And if I don't repent, I am covenanting with the church that if I don't repent, please, for my own sake, take it to the elders. And for my own sake, if I don't repent, take it to the church. Because that is true accountability. According to the scriptures, it is when a person submits to the church and and are thankful that the church would go to the point of escalating the press, pressing sin upon them if they don't turn up to, from it. Escalating that issue if they are not turning to sin. Not, and not offended by it, but thankful for it. They are too involved in my life. Someone called me the other day and wanted to know how I'm doing. Because I haven't been to church in two weeks. The nerve. That's not the nerve. That's the love. That's the care for the body. What do they think? I'm out there doing something bad? Ah, We don't know. That's why we're all up in your business. Amen. We often know it is biblical, but have no biblical idea of what it looks like or what it means. We often think of uh, another buzzword discipleship i want to be at a church where i'm discipled what does that mean ask a person what does it mean to be discipled knowing that it is a biblical term knowing that it is something that god has ordained but what does it mean and how does it look we often take it to mean a one-on-one teach me all you know i'll be your luke if you be my yoda question when the lord god commanded his disciples to make disciples Did he mean that these men were to gather one on one with every single believer and teach them all that they know? And that is true discipleship. No. And yes, no, you are not going to be on a one on one relationship with every single believer. And yes, you must teach believers what God has commanded. And how do we do that in the context? It is accomplished in the context of the local church. As pastors and elders teach and deacons teach the church all that God has commanded. When God's word goes forth, you are being discipled. Those who are sitting here and say, I just wish someone would disciple me. What do you think is happening right now? I wish I had someone who was just walking with me. I'll see you next Sunday. Right now. As God's word is being taught in your hearing, you are being discipled by your elders. And now you are responsible for these particular truths in your own lives. And the church will hold you accountable. Carl Truman stated in a podcast, you don't get to decide how you're discipled. God's word sets the terms for your discipleship. God's word defines who you are and what you need. What do you need? You need to invest yourselves in the public means of grace that God has provided for you as a gift and for his people. What does that mean? Faithfully attending the Lord's Day services, 
morning and evening. I, I was looking through this precious book, The Valley of Vision, looking through a prayer for morning service. The next page, thanks be to God that our Puritans also worshiped on the Lord's Day evening. There is an evening prayer for evening worship. Come, enjoy the means of grace as the saints gather together. Sing the praises of our God, the reading of God's word. Give to the support of the church, fellowship with the saints, uh, evangelize outside of these walls. God has defined these things for us as being good. They are good and we must obey them. There is joy in obedience. If God has said, this is good for you, this is wonderful for you. Why would you not show up? What are you doing? I don't need to come in the evening. Hebrews 10. Do not forsake this, the assembling of ourselves, even all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is the day? The day of the Lord's return. Nah, not for me. I had enough this morning. He was yelling, screaming. I'm done. God has, God has commanded and defined for us what is good and what is true. And when we forsake those things, I'm not going to give today. I'll give a dollar. Tithe, that's an Old Testament principle. Is it really? Should you not give the first fruits of all that you give, all that you receive to God? Is that not good and right? A dollar. And let me say to you, even if that was your principle, a dollar. You are taking advantage of this church that is so good to you. When you could give so little to the church and give so much to the world. Even if you don't believe in a tithing principle, just in the principle of you give most to what you believe is most valuable. Amen. And God has said, this is good. Oh, don't try to make me give under compulsion. We won't. But it is a joy. It is a joy when you give. There is obedience, uh, joy and obedience when you give as God has commanded. When, when you do as God has commanded. In all things. Amen. God has defined these things for us. God has defined them as being good. The woman believed that the fruit had the ability to do something other than what God had defined. She, God said, it will kill you. She said, it will give me life. The woman believed that she would take the reins and define what the fruit would be for her. And what happened? She died in the process. You want to go your own way? You want to lean upon your own understanding? You will die. You will die. We must not come to God's word and impose our own ideas, even our 21st century ideas on the word of God. Oh, this is this is an ancient book. These these principles are passe. They're from a, a bygone era. No. God's word stands yesterday, today and forevermore. Ask yourself these questions. Am I following the biblical patterns and principles that God has established for my life or am I following my own? Am I deciding for myself what the Lord's day will be or am I deciding for God? Am I allowing God to decide for me what this day will be? 
Amen. Am I allowing God's word to define what my marriage will look like or am I, am I defining it myself? Am I defining for myself how my kids shall be raised and what their pursuits shall be? Or am I allowing God to define for me what that shall be? Am I submitting to the biblical patterns and principles that God has established for me or following my own? Or in other words, is God's word defining my reality? People leave churches all the time over these things with unbiblical reasons. We even have unbiblical convictions. We think with our feelings and not with God's word. We have convictions that we can't even define or, or, or defend biblically. It's just the way I feel. If someone, brothers and sisters, comes to us with a conviction that is based upon Scripture, that is plausible, we can respect that. And we can go our different ways if that's what it takes. But if opinions are informed by feelings and feelings alone or experiences, I hate with a passion when people come to me and say, you know, at my last church, we used to do this in my other church. I'm not, this is not your other church. You should know that by now. This ain't that church. I don't care what they're doing. Well, let me be, I'm, I'm getting a little crazy. I do care, depending on who the church was. But this is this church. This is this church. God has defined our lives for us and done so in his word. Did God really say? And sometimes we have to ask that question. Has God really said? We must be sure that God's word is defining our reality. And not just a matter of talk. Let this not just be a matter of talk. People love that. Talk, 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 talk. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, even the little ones, you you might remember talkative. Old Christian and faithful wanted to really get down to the, the, the nuts and bolts of true Christianity. And all talkative wanted to do was talk. James commands that we don't just hear, that we don't just see, but that we obey. The foolish man hears, sees, walks away and does nothing about it. So if we're talking this morning and saying, is God's word defining your reality? Is God's word defining what is real for your lives? And you say, yes, then do something about it. Don't just say, yes, it is. Nod your head because it sounds good. Do something about it. Obey it. If God's word is defining and governing your lives, then you will embrace all that God has commanded as being good. You will embrace all that he has commanded and walk in that direction. How many times have we counseled with people, given them direction as to where and how they should go? They walk away. The, the path is clear. Here's the direction, brother. Here's the direction, sister. Go that way. And do they go that way? Oftentimes they do not. Sadly. Why? Because they don't want to. Because they are following the pattern of our first parents. I'll do what I want to do. I hear what you're saying, but I don't think it's going to happen to me. I'll find out on my own. You want to define your own reality? Take heed to our first parents. You will die. It's the foolish man who knows the good and righteous path to walk on and yet goes in the opposite direction. And we have done this. We have done this time and time again. In closing, brothers and sisters, do you want to grow in your faith? 
Come to morning prayer. You want to grow in your faith? Come to the narrow road. You want to grow in your faith? Join the saints for corporate worship. Morning and, if I could capitalize that in your minds, and evening. You want to grow in your faith? Come to woman of the word. You want to grow in your faith? Come to the race. You want to grow in your faith? Come and serve with the hungry and homeless. You want to grow in your faith? Come to marriage matters. Etc., etc., etc. There is no excuse. The path has been laid for you. What will you do? There is much to your advantage that will help you on that road. You're being discipled now. You're being given authoritative commands from God's word, from an elder of this church. You're now responsible. You're now accountable. This is the road that you must take. God's word has been expounded. Take the authoritative road. Don't ignore God's word. And if you do, the blame is on your shoulders. We are so desirous to be free, to live with liberty, to have our own authority. Listen, Christianity is not Americanism. You hear that? Don't get the two confused. Christianity is not Americanism. God's word defines our reality. There's no wiggle room there. There are no amendments there. It is what God has said, and that will stand. If God's word defines what is true, then when God says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God raised him from the dead, and that you will be saved, then this is true. If God commands, we must repent, trust in Christ alone for our salvation, trust that there is nothing that you can do to save yourselves, but it's through faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, by grace alone, that you are saved, then that is true. And when Satan comes to you and says, did God really say? You can declare with confidence. Thus saith the Lord. Let us stand.